Welcome to Dietcast. I am so excited. We are here today bringing you a special post-season episode, and we are joined by a special guest. She has been on all of your favorite TV shows. You know and love her. Can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? You sure can. You might know me as Calliope House's Ruby. My name is Jen Ponton, and I'm really excited to be here. Welcome. We're so excited to have you. So um, this is our first cast interview, which we couldn't be more excited about. And obviously, we're trying to get as much behind the scenes information as we can. So Dietland was cast so wonderfully. And I'm just wondering what the process was like. Was it the normal audition process that happens for shows? You've been on lots of other shows before, or was it a more unique experience given the context? Well, I can shine a I can shine a little bit more light on it because I was actually in the original mix for Plum as well. So oh. I was um, I was sort of in I was working with the team for a very long time, and I would say the Plum process was like six months. It was enormously long, and that is that is definitely a longer timeline than typically happens. It's usually a little bit merciful for the actor. Like you might have your first audition week one and then your callback week two, and then like a studio test week three or four. So, you know, you can kind of like just move through it at, at a pace that kind of has it over and done with. But we were, we were in and out for plum from February of 2017 through late June. <laughs> wow. And so that was a very, very long process. Um, I, uh, and, and I was actually delighted to see Joy in our final tests because she and I go way back. And of course, all this was, you know, uh, totally privileged information at the time. So nobody knew where we were or what we were doing. Um, but I saw Joy and I was like, holy crap. And, you know, we wished each other well, and, I, and I'm and i so happy that we ultimately got to work together. And um, uh, because we've sort of been, like, bi-coastal fat activists for, like, the last 10 years of our lives. I've, I've known Joy for, like, 10 years. And, uh, and being able to collaborate was really, really, really fun, particularly for the people that we, you know, like, shared space with, even if it was just virtual. But once... Once they had Joy locked in as Plum, and once the network decided they were an absolute go on the show, then things started to move much more quickly. So they announced Juliana as Kitty, and I think earlier, I think they also then announced Adam as Dominic, Mm -hmm. and there were still a couple people who were later announcements, but I would say they started to lock in their other series regulars um, pretty quickly after they committed to the show, I think in like August. And then in October, they started casting some recurring characters and I think still some series regulars who were left. And um, I was super excited because in the book, Ruby is Latina. And I, so I assumed that the role would not be on, you know, uh, appropriate for me, Mm -hmm. but they had done so much creative casting and inclusive casting that 
Ruby was allowed to be open ethnicity. And I was very, very excited about that because she is my favorite character. Oh. And when I was like <laughs> assessing, well, what might the future for Dietland be? I was like, well, it could be Ruby, but I really don't think it will be. So um, needless to say, that was a very, very pleasant surprise. I went in and I, and I read for it. And of course, everybody was already very familiar with me. And we had our first table read in November. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I know that's a lot of information. Oh, we love it. <laughs> we love all the all the minutiae. We every week we look forward to just when the credits start. Like we don't get bored with anything. It's all good info for us. <laughs> I'm so happy. I also think I would watch literally any project where you and Joy Nash were teamed up, like <gasps> yeah, pop movie, um, like anything. <laughs> right though, <laughs> it's a fantastic partnership. For the past um, ten weeks, we have been watching episodes as they come out and analyze them, and we think Dietland is a very unique show. We wanted to ask you, as someone who is part of bringing it to our screens. Why do you think it was important to make Dietland now? Oh God. I mean, other than every, every reason under the sun, if I, if I expound on that, I think we're in a time right now where nobody can close. Well, people can, that's, that's a falsehood. People can close their eyes to what's going on, but I do think it's being increasingly difficult to do so, um, particularly when it comes to women, because I also think women are sort of the most brainwashed as well. Not that we are the most oppressed, but I do think we're the most brainwashed, and I do think we buy into patriarchy much more than, let's say, people of color who are very much aware of the oppressive society in which they live and, and the ways in which the world is gamed against them. Um, I think we have a lot of women who who have spent much of their lives very much buying into all of the myths put before us, everything in regards to beauty and how our bodies should be controlled, um, in any way you could imagine, whether it comes to reproductive rights or whether it comes to abiding by the beauty and uh, and size norms that have been set properly for us. And I think we're finally coming into a time where, where more women are waking up and they don't know what to do with this anger. Um, and I think Dietland is such a wonderful acknowledgement of that. Like, you know, and I know Marty feels the same way. I don't think that this level of violence is the answer, even though it might feel very satisfying to indulge in weekly. (laughs) I, I think the answer is, is something else, but before we get to whatever that more disciplined place is, we have to acknowledge and feel and honor the rage that we have been building up inside us for lifetimes now. I've I've had conversations with, you know, with older women who are in their late 70s and 80s and there is there is a feeling of um resentment even towards 
younger women who are now able to push back against these because we're starting to tear down the facade. And it's like, I had to put up with this my entire life. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me that you're 25 years old and, and you don't have this, this glass ceiling just crushing down on you. So yeah, I think there's a lot of rage that has to be dealt with. And I think Dietland is a beautiful vehicle for doing so. I love that. Thank you. Um, that is, I'm, I have so much anger <laughs> and, uh, like in, and cheerful anger, right? Like it's usually uh giggle, giggly anger, but, um, I think that's so important. And I think that's what I love about the show is it's one of the first times I've seen such, uh, like a gaze of anger that is, there's no male gaze to the anger like it's just women's anger embodied and i i love i love how you sum that up i do want to let you know i've i'm on vacation currently at my oh, sister's wow. house in massachusetts um with my republican brother-in-law and i've been letting everyone know that he told me america is actually it's never been better according to him um so we have nothing to worry about in case you've been worried about the state of the world cool 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 thanks bro yeah <laughs> yeah no it's good it's fine i spend a lot of time in the guest room it's okay scream about something else <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, so all of that anger, all of the actors and clearly the writers, like everybody is quite overtly feminist behind this show. That is why we love it so much. So is there a difference between this set and say other sets you've worked on? Like we've looked at your credits. We know you've been on like some Law and Order SVU episodes. You've been on Kimmy Schmidt, lots of other shows. Um, what's the set like? compared to other environments you've worked in? Well, I do have to preface it by saying that for the, for, for far by and large, I have always been in the hands of very competent, kind, creative men. And I have really not had many unpleasant experiences with men on sets. That said, there is in general, and it is a culture I've experienced, thankfully, fewer times than than most people so far. But there is a culture on sets that is just very fear-motivated. And it comes from, you know, it comes from a very masculine energy being in charge and short tempers and yelling at people when something goes wrong. And it's not helpful. <laughs> like literally yeah. no part of that helps anybody be more efficient or creative or relaxed, which are literally all three things you need in order to come in on time and under budget. And so it it fosters a it fosters an environment of fear that mostly damages people like the actors, especially people who are coming in just to do a guest star or a co-star who are who are guests of that set. And when you're a guest, you come in and you, you know, try and learn the energy and read people and try to do what everybody expects of you and not step on any toes. And, you know, you're there to play nice, basically. And that kind of behavior can just lead to a very stressful day from anybody, but especially I can say as an actor, like it makes me feel very 
unokay in terms of then being able to channel whatever I have to do to look natural in front of a camera. Like there's not somebody yelling at everybody. <laughs> Whereas this set, which was not, it was not an exclusively female crew. We still had a predominantly male crew, but we had a lot of female crew members and we, and everybody who was in charge. So the writers and producers and EPs on set were all women our DP uh, was female as well. So you have so many positions of power being occupied by these women who have also been given the freedom to tell a story that, you know, that, that lets their voices be heard and lets their rage be heard. So you already have needs being met so much so that, when you got onto the set, it was really just a place where you felt safe and like you could ask questions and and where you where if something did go wrong, it was not, you know, a mousy, excuse me, could you just it was a firm, please stop that. And then we just went on. It wasn't like like what I have heard from guys in the same position. It's like, come the fuck on, get it together, people, right? You don't need yeah. that. And a lot of people know, both male and female, that we don't need that. But certainly the women on our set knew. And so it was just a much more peaceful place where I felt like everything was nicely under control. There was so much respect. There was so much comfort. And we did come in uh, more, certainly more times than not, quite on schedule. You know, there was like, it just, it didn't <laughs> rock the boat. Imagine that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what? Peace and respect in the workplace. I love I it. I know, right? That sounds great. Sign me up. <laughs> I have another question about your onset experience, actually. Mm-hmm. So the show deals with so many heavy topics. And we wondered if you could think back to a time on set where you ever – that was really just a lot of fun. Oh, I have I have had a lot of fun on many sets, thank God. Um, I, I did have fun on diet land because I was surrounded by so many incredible individuals and we were doing really good, important work and we all knew it. And being part of that, especially from the beginning is so special. It's just a different thing when you walk into a show that's already established, but being, being part of the initial creation of, of the series is, is really something marvelous. And so, so Dietland absolutely counts, but I would say the most fun I have ever had on set in my life was for Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. (laughs) And most of that was because I was working opposite Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) And, uh, and he is everything you would hope he is. I can, (laughs) I can vouch for it. 100%. 100%. Like there is not everything that you see him, you know, in the apartments.com commercials. And you're like, God, I, I wonder if he's really that weird and delightful. He abs. <laughs> and uh, because we were shooting, because the nature of 
that particular episode was that we were shooting a talk show. We were on location at a talk show studio and the whole audience was full of extras playing the audience of the talk show. Very meta, right? And so it was close to Christmas time. And Jeff is also a jazz musician uh, and a really good one too. Like I've, I've seen him perform. He's incredible. And he was just playing with them and so in between setups while while the director is talking with the dp and everybody is is working on something else jeff is leading these extras through christmas carols and playing <laughs> what he what i refer to as the gold bloom game so he has you rate how many gold blooms something was and one can imagine that that only means is is this as delightful and weird as <laughs> as it can be? And so you'd have a scale of ten out of ten gold blooms. How how many gold blooms was was this take? And everybody, I mean, everyone just had such a great time. And then with me in my coverage, so the camera is right over his shoulder as I'm sitting with him, and right as we're about to go, he's singing jazz standards to me right up until action and I have to <laughs> not break <laughs> and I can't believe I didn't I can't believe I was able to roll with that but it was so fun and so delightful and we we got to know each other and chat and swap pictures of pets and babies and it was just it was a blast, and ever and the whole crew on on the show was wonderful as well. Everybody was really kind, and um, and a lot of the same folks who used to work on Thirty Rock, who I had worked with several years before, I got to see again. So, yeah, that was that was probably the most fun, and and I would say another follow up to that would be um, an indie film in which I starred called Love on the Run. We shot that up in, um, basically up in the Catskills. And we were on location at like a and b in the woods for three weeks. And so I loved all of these people so much. I still do. I still keep in touch with them. And, and just like these people are family. We had so much fun during the day. We made a great movie. And then we'd come back at, we'd, after wrapping, and we would sit outside around the bonfire and sing, and a couple of couple guys brought their guitars, and it was just, it was like movie camp. It was so fun, <laughs> and some of the best memories of my life for sure. Thank you. That's delightful and weird. <laughs> what I was hoping for. So. <laughs> I know it's all very strange. <laughs> um, well, you know, one time at my office we had cupcakes, so it's kind of the same, <gasps> the same thing. <laughs> Now that's what we're missing. <laughs> um, so for me, this show has felt like a feminist origin story for the character of Plum. Um, and, and same with the book. Like it's someone who um, begins not really in it, right? Like she's not, she doesn't seem to have, um, she's not part of these circles. And then by the end, she becomes this full-fledged feminist. It feels to me always like sort of a superhero origin story. So I was wondering if you have your own feminist origin story, like what what got you going? Like, was it from an early age or, or when did it sort of happen for you? Was it quick? Was it slow? Ooh, that's a good question. 
That's a good question. I think my younger self, so me when I was like an early teenager, I think I knew in my heart that that was exactly what I wanted and and what I was drawn to. And I was very hyper aware at the time that, you know, not in a way that would indicate that I was, that I was feeling like, like a trans individual, but I would feel like, you know, a girl like me really should have been a guy. And that was the only way I could express it. And it had absolutely nothing to do with gender for me and everything to do with my experience as a woman is not reflected on screen. I am not shown the badass qualities that I know that I that I have inside me. I don't see women being lauded for that. I only see guys being lauded for that. So maybe I was just supposed to be a guy. Maybe I was supposed to be like Steve Martin or Robin Williams. And so all of my role models were men because they were the only people in whom I could see those traits that I knew that I had to offer the world. And now I can look on that like, holy shit, that was so problematic. And that was, that was, I think the, I think that was the kernel of awakening. And as I sort of started to explore it, because I felt so much more quote unquote, like a guy, because I could relate to guys more, I hung out with guy friends and, you know, they'd talk about feminazis and all of a sudden it seemed like, oh, it's not cool for me to want to be a feminist. So any kind of inkling I might have had that I should be one got squashed for a good handful of years, I would say, probably until I was in college. And I saw the good work that like the Women's Center was doing. And at first, I carried that stigma in like, oh, feminists are just supposed to hate men. And then I would have these really great female role models. And I would see these both women and men, but very much feminists who were doing really good work, and who had wonderful rich life experiences who were embracing their womanness in in many ways and i was like oh okay maybe this is kind of what i'm going for um but underneath all of that was like plum still an absolute uh toxic relationship with my body i have been fat ever since i was like seven or eight at varying levels, but I was definitely always the the markedly fat kid. Um, And it was something that I was teased about as early as seven or eight. And I had a really bad disordered vision of my body and a really bad disordered relationship with food and exercise. And I would binge and then I would withhold and it was just all really, really, really bad, bad news bears for a very long time. And um, in right before I found joy, because this is how I found oh, joy. Wow. <laughs> right. She's part of the story. That is, it is part it- of the story. And that's why it's so beautiful. Yes. Um, yeah. Right before I found joy, I found the 
Fatosphere, which back in back in grandma's days were, was the block ring, right? So it was what would have been what what year would this have been? Like this is like mid two thousand. This is like two thousand seven, and it had been established there probably longer. But I found it in in two thousand seven, and so I discovered, and I don't remember how, but I discovered this blog ring, and it was so many individuals who have gone on to do incredible things, like. Reagan Chastain and Marianne Kirby. I can't remember if Leslie Kinzel was, I believe she was, but maybe a little bit after I had um, sort of moved on from that particular blog ring. Um, Kate Harding, uh, Marilyn Wan, uh, Joy. And in reading the works of all of these incredible women, they were basically just blogging about feminism and its intersection with fatness and intuitive eating and health at every size. And so once I cracked the shell on this, I was like, oh my God, I have never heard any of these things. Nothing like this has ever been presented to me. So I would go to work all day. I'd go to work in retail and I'd come home and all night, I don't think Netflix was like, a streaming thing even yet. I would just no. <laughs> open my laptop and I would read archive after archive after archive from these, from these mostly women, some men. And I got reprogrammed and in reprogramming my relationship with my body, of course, all of these bloggers were inherently very feminist and they were also, thank God, intersectional feminists. So I learned a ton about how much our verbiage has excluded women of color. And so I got such a great sort of DIY master's degree on all of these things and, and was able to really see myself in a brand new light. And, and thank God, cause that's how I found joy. It's how I found her fat rant. It's how I got involved with all these women who are still friends to this day, who I am planning collaborations with. And, and, and they're really the ones on whom at least this new renaissance of, of body positivity is based. Like it's, it has been co-opted from fat acceptance um, as I'm sure you guys are aware, but yes, uh, but this is this is the most recent, you know, legit fat acceptance wave, and and I was so fortunate to find it. So that's sort of how I how I learned to love my body and how I learned to be a feminist. I basically had my own real life calliope house online. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. God bless the internet for radical, like radicalizing a generation of women. I think. Um, Yes. They shouldn't have let us talk to each other. What a mistake. What a mistake. You know, they're regretting it. You know. Yeah. I want to pick up on something that you said about, I think there's, there's such power in finding writings and media where we can actually see ourselves. Um, and I think that's part of why Dietland was so, the book was so important to the two of us. I mean, we were like waiting with bated breath for the show to come out. <laughs> we wondered if you have another book that you would love to see turned into a television show. Oh gosh. You know, 
Jennifer Weiner has, I, I feel like she has always been a great early adopter as far as novelists go, a great early adopter of larger heroines and protagonists who are not necessarily obsessed with their bodies. I mean, it is a sliding scale. And also a lot of the books that she's written with larger protagonists were in were in the days before this was even a blip on most people's radar. So, but I do feel like her work is very good and I really enjoy her stories. I always have. I think she tells really wonderful female-centric stories and it's and it's great that many of them have starred fat women who are awesome and sexy and successful. Um I would love to see more of her properties get picked up. I also am very, very, very excited that Julie Murphy's book, um, Dumplin, is getting made. It, I think they already wrapped. I think it's in post. But she writes young adult um, literature with fat protagonists that is very, very current, um, edgy, feminist, fat acceptance, fabulousness, body positivity, rockin' stuff. Um, so I would really, I would love to see more authors who are, who write specifically for adults, for them to be doing um, size positive work and for that to get optioned. I think that's important. Does that answer the question? I feel like I missed part of it. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. We're we're just looking for yeah. a reading list. That's that's what I'm we're very doing. excited for Dumplin. It hits like a lot of my like it's a beauty pageant. It's a revolution. It's everything I want yeah, in in a story. Right. So I'm psyched. I'm psyched. Yeah, I I'm not I'm not super aware. I'm behind on so much reading that I'm not really aware of who's doing that kind of work right now. But I feel like Julie is definitely the most the most visible author who who is doing size positive work. I mean, Dietland for us was the kind of book we never thought would be made into a show. Like Erin recommended she it was one of those you have to read this. And then I came back to her was just like how did someone write? And then when they made a show out of it, it blew my mind that they would because it has such like this anarchist edge to it that I love. Um, so it makes me hopeful that more of these projects that are so outside the norm of the kind of empowerment women are allowed to have in shows will be made. So I feel like if they made Dietland, they can make anything at this point. Oh, absolutely. I would... I mean, I would really love to see more of that, especially as we continue to draw the dichotomy between the two. I'm sure I don't need to tell you two about Insatiable and how conversely so much pushback has come up against that, that like, okay, follow the trends. People are getting really excited about Dietland. People are getting really mad about Insatiable. Maybe you could follow the the breadcrumbs. <laughs> I know. And it's those reminders that, oh, we're not, we're not even close to where we want to be. Like we're just, we have these nuggets of salvation, but we're so far behind. Right. On that note, on a lighter note, <laughs> we, we loved 
in we call them all the scenes underground in the basement at Clyby House or with Jennifer the bunker scene. So in the bunker, the Jenna the Jenna bunker or the bunker fur, they all have their own <laughs> sleeping bag with a Disney princess name on it, which prompted Aaron and you don't know um, my dear friend Aaron well. I can't believe she asked me this, but she asked me which Disney princess I would be, which could not be further from her personality. It was the most beautiful question she's ever asked me. So um, in turn, we'd like to ask you, based on all the Jennifer Disney princess sleeping bags, which Disney princess would you be? I would probably be Anna from Frozen. Oh, good. Good one. Yeah. I like that. I like I've never, that. You know, I'm, I'm far more for the anthropomorphic, is that the correct mm. word, when they've got the movies that are all animals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I'm I'm far closer probably to Robin Hood. Ooh. Oh, interesting. Ooh, okay. Like that that works. <laughs> Blue, perhaps. <laughs> I picked Ariel when the obvious choice should have been Ursula, who I think is sort of a queer icon at this yes. point. I've been to a queer, a queer dance party with a blow up Ursula. Uh, that was quite a night. Um, and Aaron, Aaron picked the more correct Mulan, which I think is the right choice. Mulan's pretty badass. Except I admit that I would probably though be like one of the B-list <laughs> princesses who just like has a really big heart but ends up dead at the end. You know, <laughs> she's Bambi's mother. Yeah, that's dark. That's dark. Yeah. So listen, Jen, we're coming to the end of our interview. And the last thing we wanted to ask you, I think, unless Susie, I'm missing anything. No. Is so for our listeners who love you as much as we do, where can they find more of your work, more of your writing and learn more about you? Well, I've made everything super accessible at jenponton.com. So you'll be able to watch all kinds of reels and get pointed to the movie if you want to watch the movie. Um, all sorts of pictures and news up there. Um, and if you want to keep up with me in real time, I'm very active on Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is at Jen Ponton. Awesome. Oh, we can't thank you enough for being a part of this special episode of Dietcast. We hope we will see much, much more from you in the future. I hope so too. And I know we're all keeping our fingers crossed for a season two. I would imagine we have to hear about it soon because the writer's room is working. Oh, great. So, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, the writer's room has been working for several weeks now. So it seems like a silly idea to just have them working if you're not planning on right. it. Right. Like at least let them go and then save some money. So I think it is leaning towards yes, but we'll see. Fingers crossed. Okay. Well, we'll be waiting and, and then we will be watching. I feel good about it. I feel good too. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Thank you guys so much for the amplification for the series, for your celebration of the series. Like, I just kind of feel like we're all geeking out in real time. It's very Yeah, cool. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Thank you guys so much. It's my pleasure.